Now, we see in chapter 3, and when we come to this chapter, why I probably should have called your attention in chapter 2, and I suppose I did, that that was the first beauty contest. Now, this chapter, the title I've given to it is Haman and Anti-Semitism. And we read here that after these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And now here is a man by the name of Haman. He's one in the long line of those who've led in a campaign of anti-Semitism. And this goes back of Haman to Pharaoh in Egypt. You remember, he tried to eliminate these people by killing the firstborn. That was his way of cutting down on the population explosion. But it was to eliminate the nation Israel. And now we have Haman. And you can move down through the history of this world, and you'll find that again and again there have been attempts made to eliminate these people, all the way from Haman to Hitler, by the way. And today, we're told that in Russia, that there is a real wave of anti-Semitism. Now, God at the very beginning began to protect these people. He had to, because they were to be the custodians of his revelation. The revelation God had for man would come through these people, and also the Savior, the Messiah, would come through these people. And it has. God said to Abraham, I'll bless them that bless thee, I'll curse them that curse thee. Now, whether you like it or not, God's made good on that. That has been literally fulfilled down through the ages. And God even went a step farther in Isaiah's time. In Isaiah 54, 17, this is what he said, "...no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, saith the Lord." Now, God says, no weapon against you will prosper. And a great many people thought that Hitler might become a world dictator. And our nation, in fear, we rushed into World War II. There are a great many people that say today that we should not have entered Vietnam. I agree with that. There are a great many folk that say that we should not have been in World War II. I agree with that. I think that we should have stayed out of that and let the two juggernauts, Russia and Germany, slug it out. And then when they both got so weak that neither one could fight, then we could have stepped in, which we should have done at that time, and we should have, of course, supplied all of the material for the Allies. But this idea of always shipping our manpower abroad, I think, is entirely wrong. But at that time, we were frightened of Hitler. Many of you folk can remember that we thought this man's moving to world dictatorship. And it sure looked like that he was at that particular time. Well, God has stopped him. God stopped Haman. God stopped Hitler. Now, we are beginning to see why God has moved Esther to the throne. Because if she hadn't been there, this anti-Semite Haman 
would have exterminated these people, because that certainly was his intention. Now, notice who he is. He's called an Agagite. And if you go back, and I'm not going to take time to go back today, but if you'd go back into 1 Samuel, for instance, why, you will find that at that time, 1 Samuel 15, 8, the Agagites were actually Amalekites. The Agagite was the royal family. And God told Saul to exterminate the Agagites. And a great many people think that that's very cruel of the Lord to do that. But you see, when the Lord commands something, it may sound cruel to you and me, but he has a reason for it, because he knows something we don't know. I always feel these people that are finding contradictions in the Bible and appear to be so clever today, they appear to be a little smarter than God is, and they know something that God doesn't know, that in his word, the Lord slipped up and made a mistake. Well, the one who slipped up and made a mistake is the one who, in this particular case, says, My, isn't it a shame that God would give a command to destroy the Agagites, nice, sweet little Agagites. Well, if this man, Saul, had destroyed the Agagites, there'd have been no Haman. And I'm of the opinion that one or two million people expired because of this man, in spite of what was done to head him off that many had to die because of his presence. So I'm of the opinion to have gotten rid of a few Agagites back there in the days of Saul would actually have saved human life. It would have been a good measure, not a bad measure at all. But you see, the critic didn't seem to know what God knew, and God knew what the future was. But now here he is. He's a full-grown Agagite. And he's a man of real ability for what happens. Why, the king has advanced him, and he's put him above all the princes who were with him. And that means he's now made prime minister, and he occupies a unique position. Now we are told, and all the king's servants who were in the king's gate bowed and did obeisance to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Now, the king set out word. He said, I have a new prime minister. His name's Haman, and I want you to bow before him and recognize his position. And then we're told here, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did obeisance to him. Now, friends, I'm prepared to change my mind about this man, Mordecai. I told you I'd have to do that, and that's exactly what we're having to do is to change our mind concerning this man. I feel like now throwing up my hat in the air, because this man now refuses to bow down. And that seems to be something that's quite unusual. I think all of these other flunkies that were there, they went down on all fours. That's the way they bowed in that day, not just bending at the waist. They went down. And here stands this little short fellow there looking out, over the crowd, and he's not bowing at all. And why doesn't he bow? Well, this man was brought up under the Mosaic law. He'd been told not to bow to anyone but God. God was the only one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You're not to bow or to worship and to do anything like this. So this man's not about to do that. Now may I say this concerning Mordecai. Mordecai and Esther, they were not faithful enough to go to Jerusalem. 
but they are willing to jeopardize their life in order to save their people. Therefore, I'm sorry what I said about Mordecai. And you and I today need to recognize this. Let God determine who's faithful. We're not the ones to determine that. And this man Mordecai is not a clever politician here. This man is not bowing because he does have a background. And in that background, though he's disobeyed God, not returning. He has a background of not bowing to any but God. Now we have in verse 3, Then the king's servants who were in the king's gate said unto Mordecai, Why transgresseth thou the king's commandment? They said to him, You're foolish. You're jeopardizing your position and your life. Go down on all fours before him. But this man didn't do that. And it came to pass when they spoke daily unto him, every day now, this man Haman had come in. And when he did, all of them went down on all fours except Mordecai. And he hearkened not unto them. But they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he told them he was a Jew. Now, he had not revealed his nationality. And finally, these others, they said, why, this is foolhardy. It's absurd. Why won't you bow? And finally, he had to tell them. He said, I'm a Jew. And the minute he said that, in that day, he gave away his religion. He worshiped the one and only God. He had been taught in Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, Hear, O Israel, Jehovah, thy Elohim is one Jehovah. Jehovah, thy plural God, is one Jehovah. And he was to declare to the world, the ancient world, a world of idolatry, of the unity of the Godhead. Now, we today are not in a world of idolatry, of polytheism. We today are in a world of atheism, not polytheism. And we today are to declare the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this man, at this particular point, has taken a stand. And they know now why. Because the Jew was known in the world of that day of worshiping the one and true God. Now, in verse 5, And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him obeisance, then was Haman full of wrath. Now, ordinarily, if he's a big man, and they called it to his attention, he said, oh, forget it. He doesn't want to bow. If he wants to be different, let him be different. But this man, Haman, is annoyed by this to the extent that he hates this little man, and he's not going to just take out his hatred on him. He's going to take it out on his people. And in verse 6, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Now, we see the plot. This man is working to destroy the entire nation of Israel. Now, can't you see that God was moving back of the scenes in this pagan heathen court, putting someone on the throne next to the king in order at the right moment that might intervene in behalf of him. You see, standeth God in the shadows, keeping watch over his own. And how important that is to note here, my friend. 
Now, again, we've come to a very important place, and this is a good place to come in a continued story. Now, what's Haman going to do? How is he going to manipulate it that he can exterminate these people? Well, he's a clever rascal, and he'll come up with something. And believe me, he's a villain. Pharaoh attempted it, and then we discovered that Herod attempted it, and then more recently, Hitler attempted it. Haman is in that lot. And they need to know that because these people have been the repository for the Word of God, the Word of God has come through them, and because the Lord Jesus, according to the flesh, came through this line, why, the devil has been anxious to destroy them. Now, as a nation, they're like the rest of the nations, far from God today. And that little nation over there is not any ways near God. They have a religion, but it's not the religion of the Old Testament even. They are far, far from God. And there are just a small percentage, as there is a small percentage of Gentiles who've turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, God has a purpose for the nation, and there will be a turning back to him on the part of these people when God concludes his purpose in the church. Now, the devil has attempted to destroy them, and God has put up a certain hedge around them. God said when he called Abraham to make of him a nation, he says, I'll bless them that bless thee, I'll curse them that curse thee. And believe me, all you have to do is read history to find out that that is accurate and that that is true. And we also called attention to Isaiah 54:17. He says, "No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn." Too bad Haman didn't know about this. Well, if he'd even known about it, he wouldn't have believed it. But it's too bad he didn't believe it, because this was his undoing. But this man now has been elevated to a very high position in a world empire. He is the prime minister. And because this little man Mordecai will not bow to him, and I rejoice in him now, he's taking a stand that he should have before this. But at least now he's taking a stand actually for the Mosaic law, for God. He will not bow down. And that disturbs this man Haman. It irritates him no end, and he's going to do something about it. But he didn't want to just lay hands on one little man. He now turns to the nation. Now, what's his plot? Notice verse 7. In the first month, that is in the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is the lot before Haman, from day to day and from month to month, and to the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. Now, that was a form of gambling, and it was a lottery. And the lottery was used then to raise taxes. You see, actually, there's really nothing new under the sun even today. And the income was not enough to take care of the budget. And that's not new either, by the way, today, that we're not able to raise enough. 
And so this man, Xerxes, had a big bill for the war. You remember, he had carried on a campaign against Europe, and he needed a great deal of funds. Now, Haman, apparently, in his position, why, he probably had access to the tax records, and probably it was under his supervision that the taxes were collected and the method of the lottery being used, casting per. It was a form of gambling. And it was not enough. And that's an old story also. And they had to seek for some other method. Now, Haman was a very wealthy man, and he saw now an opportunity to accomplish his purpose. Verse 8, Haman said unto king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are different from all people." Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it's not for the king's profit to tolerate them. Now, these people were different. Their laws were different. They followed the Mosaic law. Now, though they're not back in the land obeying God, they are following the Mosaic law, scattered throughout the kingdom. And as a result, This man Haman says, look, these unusual people, they are different, and they are probably people that we ought to exterminate. And his idea was, he said, he would bring into the king's treasures a certain amount. And that apparently was the amount to meet the deficit. And the king, of course, was interested in that plan. Most politicians are a way to raise more taxes and more money, and this seemed to be an out for him. And the king took his ring from his hand, and he gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jews' enemy. And this king, he didn't take the trouble to inquire who the people were. He didn't even know who they were. I don't think he cared who they were. He just said, here's the ring. Now, that ring had on it his signature and it would be pressed down into soft or warm wax. And that was the way the king signed his name. In that day, very few people could write. And this man probably couldn't write, actually. But that ring was his signature. And he just takes that off and hands it to Haman, tells him, now, whatever you want to do to exterminate these people, you go right ahead. Now, someone is going to say, but that certainly is showing no regard for human life. Well, did you expect this king to show regard for human life? He had dissipated the wealth of this kingdom in a campaign against Greece, and it's variously estimated how many men perished in that campaign. It could have gone up to two million, but it didn't disturb him. It didn't worry him a bit that... Two million men laid down their lives for a bad move and a mistake that he made. But anyway, he's now turned the ring over to Haman, and Haman is going to use it. We read here, verse 11, The king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also, to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Then were the king's scribe called on the thirteenth day of the first month, And that was written according to all that Haman had commanded under the king's deputies and to the provinces who were over every province and to the princes of every people of every province according to its writing 
and to every people after their language in the name of King Ahasuerus was it written and sealed with the king's ring. Now, this was quite an effort to get this word out because you will recall this is the media Persian Empire. It stretches from India all the way across Asia down through the Fertile Crescent and Mediterranean Sea, moves over and picks up some of Europe, all of Asia Minor, and goes down into Africa through Egypt down to Ethiopia. It was a vast kingdom. And in that, there were people speaking many languages, a minimum of 127. But you do have to take into account that there were tribes in these provinces, and I do not know how many, but when you put all of that together, you've got quite a polyglot of languages. And as a result, why this decree, this law, had to be put in the language of all peoples. Now, this was quite a government project. That was called in scribes. And I'm sure that the carrying on of that government in that day was a big undertaking. They probably had buildings all over the place. The scribes that could translate into all these languages were there. And they were called in. The law was translated in all these languages. And then they had to Xerox a bunch of copies because they had to have enough to cover the entire province. And then out front, why there are tethered, the dromedaries, the camels, the donkeys, and then some were just runners. All of these messengers came in, picked up their copies, and then they started out. And I tell you, the people that were in Shushan, they're in the capital city. They said, my, something is certainly going on up at headquarters. It looks like that they're getting ready to send out a very important announcement. And then that announcement goes out. Will you notice verse 13? And the letters were sent by posts into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to take the property of them for spoil. Now, this is the decree, you see. It was anti-Semitism of the worst kind. And that sort of thing has been an infection in the human race. It is satanic to the core. I don't care what you might think of these people, my friend. You and I have no right as Christians to indulge in anti-Semitism. It is satanic. It's not of God. And after all, God is gracious, and he's been gracious to us. He'll be gracious to them. Now, verse 14, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people that they should be ready for that day. Now you can imagine the effect that it had upon these people. The posts went out, being hastened by the king's commandment. And the decree was given in Shushan, the palace. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city, Shushan, was perplexed. Susa, the capital, was perplexed, this great city. The population, they couldn't understand this. These people were not traitors. They had not committed a great crime. And why should extreme measures be used like this to try to exterminate them and so out? Over the kingdom, there goes these riders 
with this message. And when these people there in the capital saw it first, why, they were perplexed, but didn't bother the king. He and old Haman, they sat down and had their cocktails together that evening. They had the happy hour, and they were delighted. Now, the king did not realize that that law that was going into effect would touch his queen. He didn't know at this time that she belonged to the nation Israel. He didn't realize that, and he will find it out in time. But that law now is to exterminate these people. Now, the law cannot be revoked. We've already seen one law that set aside Vashti the queen, and it couldn't be changed. Even the king couldn't change it. Now, this law, having been made and sent out and passed with the king's signature, it's the law of the Medes and Persians. It can't be changed. Now, how will God save his people? There'll have to be another decree made. Somebody's going to have to intervene. And by the way, God had been preparing for this. We opened this book, talked about the providence of God. And we looked in a pagan palace where there was a drunken orgy going on, several thousand attending a banquet. And a family scandal is revealed, and the queen refused to obey the king, and she set aside. And somebody says, what's that got to do with it? Has everything to do with it. God was moving. God's going to move into a position right next to the throne, a person that's going to be the means of saving these people. God does it by his providence. This king didn't say, now, I want to do God's will. <laughs> He's not interested in God's will. Well, God will overrule him. After all, when Caesar Augustus signed a tax bill, and on that tax bill, why, all the world was to be taxed. And suppose that you and I had been there, and we'd said, Say, Caesar, did you know that when you sign that tax bill, you're fulfilling prophecy because you're going to cause a maiden up at Nazareth to get down to Bethlehem, and she's going to have a baby down there, and that's going to be the fulfillment of prophecy. And I think old Caesar... Augustus would have laughed and said, I don't know anything about babies, but I do know about taxes, and that's a tax bill, and he signs it. And, you know, that's the way that it moved. God was back there in Caesar's palace, too. Standeth God in the shadows, keeping watch over his own. Now, it may be that we do need more police today, and I think we do, and it's not safe on the street. But thank God we have a God that's standing in the shadows, keeping watch over his own, because Satan would like to destroy his own today. Now, this decree has gone out, and it's not going to be altered or changed. If you think that the king is going to be able to just revoke it, you're wrong. He won't be able to. That brings me to chapter 4, and the title I have for this chapter is for such a time as this. Now, when Mordecai learned all that was done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth with ashes, and went out into the center of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry, came before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. My, what a performance, this man. He gets in sackcloth and ashes. No prayer, 
but there's sackcloth and ashes. Why? He believes that decree. He knows that decree is accurate. He knows that decree can't be changed. And so he believes. Now, friends, there's come out from God a decree. Actually, the world today as a whole doesn't believe it. And that decree that's come out from God is, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And all have sinned and come short of righteousness. We've come short of the glory of God. We've come short of that. We don't meet his standard at all. And even the dying thief on the cross said to the other, he said, we indeed justly. This man dying next to us, this wasn't for him. He's dying in another's place. But we indeed justly. You and I deserve death because we belong to the human race in which it's said, and Adam all die. And death is passed upon all men because all have sinned. We sinned in Adam. Death's passed on us. And even the little baby will die. And it's appointed unto man once to die. And after death, the judgment. Now, there's a great many people today think that's been altered. They think that's been changed. They think that somehow or another that God's become soft and he's become sentimental and that God is not able to go through with it, that after all, he just loves everybody, and he does. <laughs> you can't change that. But he'll never save you by his love. He saves you by grace. By grace are you saved. And today, the decree has never been changed. I had this experience. I had a Bible class down in Escondida, and one of the young people there, and there were quite a few young people attending those classes. And actually, in some of those classes, many of them look like the hippie group, but they're interested in the Word of God. And they sent up a question, for I spent the first part of the hour answering questions. And the question this girl sent up, she says, I wrote a paper and gave it to my teacher on why Christ had to die. And the teacher said that the Bible does not teach. Let me read her question. I have it here. I wrote a term paper about why people don't accept Christ. My teacher said that the Bible says people are not sinful. May I say to you that I know that we've got a lot of teachers today that are Christian. But we've got a lot, my friend, that are not only not Christian... They're just ignorant of the Bible. And I don't mind a teacher not being a believer, but to be so ignorant of the Bible, you'd make a statement like that. The Bible does say that you're sinners. And you and I belong to that kind of a race. That has never been shamed. And if you want a proof of it, why read your paper? and see what's happening in the world today. These are not a nice group of little Sunday school people today that are lying, that are stealing, that are murdering, that are holding up folk on the street, and it's not even safe for a person to walk on the streets today. Why isn't it? Is it because that we've got such fine, nice, lovely people that this is happening? No, we're all a bunch of sinners. Every one of us. We belong to that race. And God says that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. 
My friend, that decree's never been changed. You've got to have another decree to overcome it. And somebody says, well, what about keeping the law? Let me say this. The Scripture says, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Are you prepared to say that you obey all of God's law? I don't think there's any person today that would make a statement like that unless they're totally ignorant of what the Word of God has to say. Be as ignorant as that school teacher was that would make an asinine statement like that. My friend, you can disagree with the Bible, but you just are in no position to say that the Bible doesn't say that people are sinners. That's what it's all about. That's the reason Christ came. He said he came into the world to save sinners. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. You know why he said he didn't come to call the righteous? Because they're none righteous. He came to call a human family because they're all sinners, and he offers the only salvation today. No man cometh to the Father but by me, he said. Now will you notice in verse 3, and let me read it. And in every province, wherever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews. And they believed it, you see. They believed that decree. And fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. But do you notice? No prayer. Why? They're out of the will of God. You see, Cyrus has made a decree, according to the will of God, they're to return back to their land. And they haven't returned back. They're out of the will of God. So, in this state, they're not apt to pray to God. Now, Esther is the queen, and she feels perfectly safe and secure as the queen. And notice what she does. Verse 4, so Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it to her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved. She's embarrassed. Her stepfather's out there in sackcloth and ash and walking up and down and moaning and wailing and groaning. And she is embarrassed. So what does she do? She sent raiment to clothe Mordecai to take away his sackcloth from him, but he accepted it not. You see, she felt very secure, so she sent the raiment of the court. It was gay and gaudy, expensive and fine, bright colors. Mine must have sent him one of these big wide neckties and a coat with wide lapels. But you see, all the bright colors and new clothes will not change the king's edict. It'll not change the decree that's gone out. And it won't remove the stigma. And you know, today, there are a great many people deal with sin in many different ways. They try the gaudy clothes method. One is like the teacher we referred to last time, just to say the Bible doesn't say man is a sinner. And I don't know how you can make a statement like that, but apparently this is a teacher. And there are some teachers that make some unusual statements these days. And this happens to be one of them. Now, there's another method that's used. There are a great many that put on the gaudy clothes of reformation. And they say that, after all, sin is just an error, and it's a little mistake, and 
We'll just try to sort of cover up, you see. And it's just something that we can just reform, and that method is used. Someone has said that the modern pulpit today has become a place where a mild-mannered man gets up before a group of mild-mannered people, and he urges them to be more mild-mannered. And friends, I can't think of anything more insipid than that today. No wonder the world is passed by the church. We don't need reforming. We need regeneration. We need to be born again. <laughs> this man Nicodemus was religious, but our Lord said to him, "Ye must be born again. We need a new nature because we got a sinful nature, and that sinful nature is not going to heaven. Friends, you have to come to Jesus Christ. And if you go to heaven... You're going to go into heaven because you've trusted the one who died for you and took your place and's already paid the penalty of your sin. You can have it if you want it, but you'll have to accept it. Then there's another kind of gaudy clothes that people wear known as education. They say sin is selfishness. You just got to educate folk and train them. I know that when I was a little fellow growing up, I had a sister She's younger than I was. My dad would bring home a sack of candy, gumdrops in those days, and he'd tell me I had to divide it with her. And I always took the first piece. And she protested because sometimes it came out and I took the last piece. That always gave me one more than she had. And so a rule had to be made that one time she would take it first, the next time I would take it first. And so sometimes I, you know, changed that just a little and took the first gumdrop. Well, may I say that all the instruction and all the education never kept me from being selfish, I'll tell you that. And don't try to kid me, it didn't help you either. Now, religion is another way. You know, sin is ignorance. You just must turn to God, and you've got a little spark inside of you, and the spark needs fanning into flame. Many years ago, Dr. Shaler Matthews, University of Chicago, came up with this definition of sin. And think this one over for a while. Sin is the backward pull of an outworn good. My friend, if you take away all the modifiers, it's sin is good. And that's what religion finally winds up telling you. May I say to you that you need a new garment. You need the righteousness of Christ. That is the only thing today that will enable us to stand before God. So this man, Mordecai, is not even about to accept any gaudy clothes from his daughter who's on the throne, who's the queen. But when those clothes came back, she knew it was something serious. It wasn't some little minor something that had happened. Then call Esther for Hatash, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to learn what it was and why it was. She wants answers to some questions. What has caused you to put on sackcloth and ash, and why are you doing it? She wants to know. And so Hathach went forth to Mordecai and to the street of the city. The queen couldn't have done that, as you would well understand. And that was Mordecai out before the king's gate. 
And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him, and of the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasures for the Jews to destroy them. Also he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther, and to explain it unto her, and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him, and to make requests before him for her people. And Hathash came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And so he presents the writing. He said, take this decree in. Here it is in writing. Let her see it. And God has given us his word. And I wish that teacher that said the Bible doesn't say man is a sinner would read the Bible. wouldn't hurt her to read the Bible. And if she did, to read the Word of God, and you'll find out God tells you you're a sinner. The decree is shared. It's in the Word of God. Now, that word's brought to Esther. Again, verse 10, again Esther spoke unto Hathash, gave him commandment unto Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king and to the inner court, who is not called as one law of his to put him to death. In other words, no one dared come into the presence of the king without an appointment. And if you did, you'd be put to death. Now, she makes it very clear here. Except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. And if the king just sat there and didn't lift that golden scepter and someone came in like that, they'd be taken out and executed. They'd be taken out and hanged. And the king wouldn't have to even open his mouth. All he'd have to do is just not lift that scepter. And now she says, but I have not been called to come in unto the king these 30 days. I don't know what the score is. I don't know whether I should go in or not. Now Mordecai puts it on the line. Listen to him. They told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther. Listen to this now. Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. Don't think you are secure, Queen Esther, just because you're in the palace and you're the queen, because this decree touches you. Now, you must remember there'd been another queen, and a decree had been made to set her aside. She'd been set aside. And Esther might take warning from that, might be a lesson to her, that if she thinks the decree would protect her, she's wrong. That decree is that all Jews are to be slain, and she'll be slain. And Mordecai puts it on the line. Now he continues... For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their relief and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. And I pause just a moment. What other place? I'd love to have been there and ask Mordecai, what other place, Mordecai, would deliverance come from? Would deliverance come from the north or the east or the south or the west? No other place. This man's the world ruler. He's a dictator. And there's not a person on top side of the earth that could deliver her and these people. Who's going to deliver these people? 
Well, he said, if Esther doesn't move, and she's there, I think Mordecai now detects that the hand of God's been moving. She's there for a purpose. But he says, if you don't, deliverance will come from another quarter. Where? The only other place is above. And this is the closest thing to a reference to God that you have in this book. Deliverance will arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows? Well, God by his providence. And that's obvious now. God, by his providence, has been moving. He's prepared for this event. God knows what's coming. And that's the reason, friends, that you and I can trust him. We're not putting our hand in one today and trusting one today that has the power to hold us. And he has that. But he knows what's going to happen tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. He knows And you can trust him. Now, will you notice this? All right, listen to Esther now. I want to say that Mordecai is becoming a noble man in my estimation. I'm sorry I said what I did about him. But at that time, he was just the kind of man I think that he was. And I said he was. But now he's revealing that he's taking a stand for God. He's willing to die for God. Now listen to Esther, and she's going up in my estimation too. Then Esther told them to return Mordecai this answer. Listen to this. These are the words of a noble woman. Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. Why doesn't she say pray? Because they're out of the will of God. Like Jonah on that boat, nothing said about praying, you see. He's out of the will of God. He shouldn't be there. Hard to pray when you're out of the will of God. And so we find here that she just says fast. And I think that prayer went with it, though. But it's not mentioned. She wouldn't dare mention it. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so... Will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law? Now listen to her. And if I perish, I perish. She's willing now to die. (laughs) And I want to say to you that she now reveals the fact that she's a very noble person. And though out of the will of God, she's now going to be faithful. And again, I have to say it. Let's you and I let God determine who's going to be faithful and who are the faithful ones. Too many of the saints today are trying to judge everybody. Now, let's move on. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Now, what's going to happen? All right, in chapter 5, and I label this chapter the scepter of grace. Will you notice it? Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house. Opposite the king's house, and the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house opposite the entrance of the house. Now he's out there conducting state business. 
and it apparently is in some sort of a plaza or some open space around the palace there. And around that is this court. I tell you, their dress, the color that's there, and the awnings, the tapestries, the gold and the silver, the beautiful marble, all of that is there on display. The king is sitting on the throne. And this girl, she's stepped now from back, probably some alcove or back of a pillar. She steps out there now in her royal apparel. And I want to say, friends, she was beautiful. Wish I could have seen her. She was a real beauty. And notice what happened. So it was when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. It's a good thing he held out that scepter. If it hadn't, there was a law that she'd be put to death. <laughs> but he's not going to have this beautiful queen of his put to death. So he holds out the scepter. And friends, God has held out the scepter to us today. Scepter of grace. And he just asks you to come and accept. Just put your hand out by faith and accept what he has to offer. And he doesn't do it because we're beautiful. Maybe you are, but I've already looked in the mirror. I'm not beautiful. And therefore, he's not saving us today because we're beautiful. And we're not only not beautiful on the outside, we're not even pretty on the inside. We're ugly. Out of the heart, the Lord Jesus said, Proceed. And what proceeds? The ugliest brood of sins you can think of. And where does it all come from? Out of the human heart. We are hearing a great deal today about pollution and ecology. I'm for it, but I'd like to start where all the trouble begins, the human heart. There's the thing that's polluted today, and the only way in the world is to come and touch the scepter of grace that he's holding out to us, for he saves us by his grace. Now, I want you to notice what the king did here. This is a gracious, lovely thing. The king must have loved her. Listen to him. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be even given to thee to the half of the kingdom." Now, what is the king doing here? Well, just simply this. He knows that she has not come on some petty thing. She hasn't come to ask for money to buy a new hat. She hasn't come to suggest to him that they go out for dinner to the local restaurant that night. He knows it's not something like that, that there's something that's troubling and bothering his queen. And I'm sure she's trembling, because she could have been put to death there. It is a matter of life and death. And she's trembling, and he sees that. And she's very timid. So he wants to make her feel at ease. And so he hands her, really, a blank check that's signed and tells her to fill in the amount up to half of the kingdom. He says, you can have anything you want. Up to the half of the kingdom, it's yours. Just name it. What a wonderful thing that is. How gracious that is. And although she's relieved, to be sure, she's still timid. 
Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I prepared for him. She doesn't mention it, you see. And she hesitates. She says, Oh, would you bring Haman and come to a luncheon that I prepared? And the king knows that she's holding back the request. He says, Sure, we'll come. And you go tell that fellow Haman that he's got a luncheon engagement, whether he likes it or not. But he's going to like it, by the way. Esther really didn't make her request. What she did ask for is that the king and Haman come to a lunch that she's preparing. She'd let it be known there. And by the way, verse 4 here is an acrostic in the Hebrew, and it spells out the name of God. I personally wouldn't attach too much importance to that. I merely call attention to it. But now, why the die is now cast, or people are to be destroyed, unless somebody does get into the king. And certainly none of her people would be able to, and she is the only hope, actually, that is on the human plane. And after all, God has placed her there by his providence, I'm sure that Esther would never have said that she was there by the will of God. In fact, she doesn't even mention the name of God. But now, why, she goes into the presence of the king, and the die is cast. And you know, friends, that we all are going to stand before the king someday. Every believer will stand before him to see whether we receive a reward or not. And that's the judgment seat or the bema of Christ. And then there is the great white throne where the lost will appear. And whether you're saved or lost, you're going to appear before the Lord Jesus Christ, the King. And the believer will be there to see whether he gets a reward or not. And the lost are there to be judged according to their works. Now, will you notice the King here holds out the scepter to Esther. When she stepped in there, she must have been a lovely thing to look upon. And now we can see she is a very wonderful person. He holds out the scepter of grace. And today our Lord actually is reigning, not down here on this earth, but he's reigning in the sense that in this lost world, he holds out the scepter of grace. And we already now see how he's moving because the minute that the king saw her and held out the scepter of grace, he gives her a blank check. That is, the amount is not filled in. And he signed it. He said, half of the kingdom is yours if you want it. Anything up to that. So God's unseen hand is here. And the king recognizes that something is urgent. And so he hands her this check. And for us today, how wonderful it is. Paul could say, My God shall supply all your need. And today, he's given us that kind of a blank check that he'll supply our needs. Quite wonderful, is it not, to have a wonderful king? But he's more than that to us. He's a savior. He's the savior of the world. And the king now is doing all of this. Why? Because of the providence of God. 
Somebody says, how do you know that God's moving in his life? Well, listen to Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Now, you may think today that some of these rulers are very cruel and brutal and godless, and they are. But actually, the king's heart's in the hand of the Lord. God could squeeze it any time he wanted to, to remove him. And he can turn him just like you turn water that's running downhill. And God is moving here in a very definite way. Verse 5, I read now, Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. It must have been around lunchtime, and so the king blew the whistle for lunch. And he said, You get that fellow Haman over here. Now, this girl is still very timid. And notice her reaction. When they come to lunch, the king again sees that she's actually afraid and that there's something very weighty upon her mind and heart, but she's afraid to mention it. And now for the second time, listen to the king, verse 6, And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Now notice how generous and gracious he is to her. But though this must have helped a great deal, she even loses heart and doesn't make the request known. What she does is postpone it again. And in verse 7 she says, Then answered Esther, My petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet, that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king has said. Now let the king come to the banquet and bring Haman along, and then I'm going to let it be known tomorrow what my request is. Well, nothing more to do but finish the meal and then depart. And we read in verse 9, Now then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor trembled before him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. And I think he muttered under his breath, I'll sure get even with this fellow Mordecai. Now, what a picture we have here in verse 9 of Haman coming from the banquet. What he's saying is, I've made a hit with the queen, and she wants me to come tomorrow to a banquet. Well, this section now illustrates that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And the Greeks had a proverb that went something like this, whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. Now listen to him here. This man is certainly playing the fool. Listen in verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Why? He wants to do a little boasting, by the way. 
And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Now, he had three areas that he was boasting and bragging about, and this is what men brag about today. First of all, he boasted of his riches, of how wealthy he was. And there are great many men today that like to boast of the fact that they made so many thousand or even million of dollars during the past year, past few years. And it's very easy for a man to boast of that. And then the second thing that a man's apt to boast of is his children. And I happen to know he'll boast of his grandchildren, because that's what I do. And then the third thing that he will generally boast about is the fact that he's been promoted in the world and that he has a high position. And this man, Haman, he goes all the way. He boasts in all three of these areas. Now, verse 12, Haman said, Moreover, yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself, and Amara am I invited unto her also with the king. In other words, here's another thing that men boast of. I'm a ladies' man. And that is what Haman is saying. He's very human, is he not? As well as being an outstanding rascal and a villain. Now, all of this here were the things that he had on the credit side of the ledger. But he had one little fly in the ointment that bothered him and just weighed down the others. This is the debit side. Verse 13, he says, "...yet all this availeth me nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate." So as long as I see him sitting there as a petty judge, why, I'm disturbed. And again, I must call attention to the fact that this man with his wounded spirit here reveals that little things make him angry. And as we've already indicated before, we generally reveal what kind of a person we are by the things that we let annoy us. And certainly this man here is letting these little things annoy him. And that certainly is a mark of a little person. Now let's move on here. And we see, Then said Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends unto him, let a gallus be made of fifty cubits high. And tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged on it. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallus to be made. Now, what is happening when he came home from work that evening? He called in his friends and his wife, and he boasted about all of these things. But he said, there's one little thing that annoys me, and it just spoils everything else. It's the fly in the ointment. And that's that little fellow Mordecai. Well, Zeresh, and she's a pretty nice wife, is she not, to have around to make a suggestion like this, says, why don't you make a gallus 50 cubits high? Now, remember, Mordecai means little. He was a short fellow. Probably our nickname today would be Shorty. 
Well, why in the world do you need a gallus 50 cubits high? It's interesting that bitterness and hatred lead human beings to do low things, terrible things, and they vent their spleen and they vent their bitterness and hatred. And so they build a gallus 50 cubits high. And so he immediately has them start on that. And all during that night, why, you could hear the sound of the hammer in Shushan as these gallows were being built. It's unusual, I guess, for folk to work at night, but all during that night, the gallows were built.